Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, February 17th, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. It's the sixth week of our ongoing sermon series entitled Antidote, Countering the Seven Deadly Sins. And each week I say something to the effect of, well, you may think you know what this is about, but I'm about to tell you something that may surprise you. We discovered that envy was more about not being grateful for what God has given you than for about wanting something that someone else has. That greed actually silences our naturally instilled desire for God. That sloth had more to do with spiritual indifference than laziness. And that lust was really about... No, well, lust is kind of about lust, like we talked last week. Uh, But surely we all know what gluttony is about, right? We know uh, if I asked you to picture what a glutton was in your mind's eye, most of us would probably think of something like this but with a lot more food on the table, right? Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, uh, plays into this notion as he rather graphically describes the results of gluttony. Are you ready? He says, discharge, phlegm, mucus running from the nose, hiccups, vomiting and violent belching. The increase in luxury is nothing but the increase in excrement. Isn't that just lovely? Now, we'd be quick to uh, agree with the notion that gluttony was an inordinate obsession with food and drink. It's those people who, instead of eating to live, prefer to live to eat, right? It's a matter of being overly concerned about food, fixated upon food, even more than the actual amount of food that one may eat. The Bible doesn't really help us in our quest because it doesn't speak a lot about gluttony per se as Uh, and sometimes it's contradictory on the subject of food in general. Ecclesiastes 10.7 says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is a nobleman and your princes feast at the proper times for strength and not for drunkenness. Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, So I commend enjoyment, for there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and enjoy themselves. Medieval scholar Thomas Aquinas said that it was a God-given right to eat, But to actually enjoy our food, or as he said, to inordinately enjoy our food, that is a sin. Mmm. One of my favorite foreign language films was the 1987 Academy Award winning film, Babette's Feast. uh, It's a story of a 19th century small village in Denmark where two sisters, uh, Martina and Philippa, have lived their entire lives. They were the only daughters of a very strict clergyman. Martina and Philippa grew up in an environment where it was taught that salvation came through self-denial and sacrifice. In fact, over the course of their lives, they sacrificed quite a bit as young women, including opportunities to marry and to move away because they felt it was their duty to stay and take care of their father. Well, many many years later, when the women are in their 50s, uh, Babette appears at their door. She's been sent as a revolutionary refugee from Paris, sent there by Philippa's former suitor, Achille Papin. She's commended as a housekeeper, and the sisters take her into their family. 
And for 14 years, she lives a modest life with them, and she is their cook. Her only link to her past is a lottery ticket that a friend of hers buys every year on her birthday using the same numbers. Well, one year she receives word that her lottery ticket has finally hit the jackpot. She has won 10,000 francs, which is roughly $60,000 in today's money. In joy, Babette asks if she can serve the small village a real French dinner with portions of her winnings. So she leaves uh, to go back to Paris. She returns with all kinds of exotic foods and beverages, and that's when the sisters start to get worried. Despite their history together, they start to mistrust Babette's intentions uh, and, and worry about their spiritual souls. In this scene, it's getting close to uh, the time of the feast that Babette is preparing. Well, the sisters are panicked about what sinful endeavors this gluttony that they're about to experience may lead them into. Let's watch as they plan to combat the dangerous effect of this upcoming meal. It will be as if we never had the sense of taste. Thomas Aquinas would be so proud of them, wouldn't he? But friends, gluttony isn't just about food and drink, as if food and drink are bad and evil in and of themselves. No, gluttony is about excess, about immoderation, about our need for more. And I dare say it isn't just limited to meals. Author Jeff Cook, in his book 7, The Deadly Sins and the Beatitudes, comments that while we peg alcoholics and drug users as gluttonous, So also are some internet surfers, some card players, some business people. Because gluttony is first and foremost about being excessive. He says, it's a third car when one will do, a third drink when one is best, a third hobby when the other two you started aren't satisfying enough. So the bottom line with gluttony is this, how much do I really need? What is a healthy, basic lifestyle and what pushes us to just being excessive? Now, I know I told you that gluttony is more than the abundance of food and drink, but I think it's important to also briefly address the issue of gluttony and obesity. In his book, Sinning Like a Christian, uh, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins, former United Methodist Bishop Will Williman hits the nail on the head when he comments that for most of us, the repulsive thing about gluttony isn't the sin, but it's actually the fat. If we were honest, we might admit that we seem to find that gluttony is an outrage against our ideal body image more than it is infidelity against God. A six-year study by Washington University School of Medicine between the years of 2007 and 2012 revealed the startling statistic that 70% of all Americans are either overweight or obese. 70%. Based on my last checkup with my doctor, I'm in that 70%. The the sample size of this study was 15,000 men and women. Uh, The researchers said it was large enough to actually represent national rates of weight gain and obesity. And it showed considerable rise in the figures from a few decades ago. Statistics from the National Institute of Diabetes say that 17% of American children are overweight. And 678,000 deaths in the United States are attributed to poor diet and inactivity. Did you know that we Americans spend close to $60 billion a year in dieting and weight loss products? So the pressure to classify obesity as a sin is rampant in American culture. 
A recent study showed that 11% of Americans would abort a fetus if they were told that the child had an obesity or a tendency towards obesity. Elementary school children say that they are more judgmental towards the fat kid in the class than they are towards the bully. Studies have shown that an overweight person is at a distinct disadvantage when being hired for a job compared to someone who is not overweight. And although excessive fat can be due to a variety of factors, right, like heredity, chemical imbalance, certain medications you're taking, disease, metabolic rates, genetics, the list can go on and on, most of us, whether we openly admit it or not, ascribe obesity to laziness, lack of self-control, or just emotional problems, which is why I was so impressed with uh, a series I saw on the History Channel recently. And they were tackling each of the seven deadly sins. And here's a portion of, of what they said about obesity when it comes to the subject of gluttony. The physical and moral dangers of the sin of gluttony were outweighed by the necessities of survival in other cultures. South Pacific Islanders experienced near starvation while paddling long distances at sea. So too did nomadic Native Americans who lived a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. The ability to exist on minimal food was a powerful survival strategy. High body fat was important to cultures that endured these feast or famine cycles. Scientists now speculate that certain groups may have built up a predisposition to the sin of gluttony by developing what's been called the thrifty gene. In an environment where there are frequent famines, genes would emerge that allowed you to efficiently deposit whatever energy you had as fat. That extra fat would provide some protection the next time a famine came along. But now in modern times, when food is freely available, those same genes confer a risk of obesity. The environment throughout evolution wired our genes to prevent weight loss. And now the environment has changed so that weight loss is increasingly not a problem, and the opposite is, is a problem. Due to evolution, many people now carry an abnormal form of the thrifty gene, which doesn't produce the vital hormone leptin. Leptin signals the body to store fat. Essentially, the hormone tells the body to eat more when fat storages are low, and less when fat storages are high. Consequently, leptin acts like an appetite suppressant. The lack of leptin can seem to trigger the sin of gluttony. So, praise God for healthy amounts of leptin in our bodies, right? Actually, I want to help us divorce the idea that gluttony and obesity are directly related. You see, it wasn't what gluttony did to the body that concerned our early brothers and sisters in the faith. When Pope Gregory the Great first penned the seven deadly sins in 590 AD, he wrote this, the belly, when not constrained, destroys the virtues of the soul. He wasn't talking about the health effects when we overeat. He was talking about the spiritual effects when we constantly need more, more, more. Excessive food and beverage consumption has always been a concern by some. The Bible has a few passages that address this. Proverbs 25, 16 says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, or else, having too much, you will vomit it. Don't see many of that pinned on pillows and hanging in people's living rooms, do they? Or Proverbs 23, 20, and 21 says, Do not be among wine bibers or among the gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe them with rags. It's interesting. 
uh, Bishop Will Williman says that when it came to Jesus, the earliest criticisms of him weren't about his theology. It wasn't that he was saying bad things about God or his biblical interpretations were flawed. No, Jesus' critics charged that the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but your disciples eat and drink. In other words, John's disciples abstained. They engaged in religiously-based diets. But Jesus' disciples, they counted, were always eating and drinking and partying. What kind of example is that? In fact, they even charged Jesus with being a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Jesus countered their accusations with a string of parables about parties and feasting. And and he talked about uh, especially the story of the prodigal son, right, when a grand party was made to celebrate that one was lost has come home and be found. Jesus would begin telling parables by saying, a man gave a feast and invited his friends. And and doing so, he was letting listeners know that something grand about the kingdom of God was about to be shared. And it centered around eating and drinking and celebrating together. So when Jesus ended his ministry with a cup of wine and a loaf of bread in his hand, and he said that Uh, This food stood for everything that he was about. It made perfect sense. By the way, in case you were wondering, there is no evidence that Jesus was actually a glutton glutton or a drunk. That was a good old-fashioned smear tactic that his enemies uh, were leveling against him. But where we start having issues with uh, problems with food-related issues like gluttony is when we are so focused on ourselves and our wants and needs that we fail to see what's happening in the world around us. 11% of the world's population, or 800 million people, live on less than two U.S. dollars a day. 9,000 children under the age of five die every day because of uh, malnutrition. That's over 3.1 million children a year. Now, the good news is that statistic has been cut in half over the last decade. So we are making progress in that area, praise God. But first world gluttony is scandalous when related to third world poverty and hunger. We consume way too much, especially when so much of the world goes without many of the basic necessities that we all take for granted. St. Augustine of Hippo uh, taught that a rich man was actually a robber, or if he inherited his wealth from his parents, he is a son or a daughter of a robber. Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we have to ask ourselves as Christians, where are we putting our treasures? Jeff Cook comments that numerous studies had indicated that if just us American Christians would give our traditional 10% of our income, our tithe, away, Rather than the current average, which I think is about a little under 3%, 2.6%, which is what most Americans give, then in short amount of time, this extra giving by just American Christians could eliminate not only world hunger, but put clean drinking water in almost every household around the world. We, as Christians, have the resources at our disposal to make that kind of impact. That's why I'm such a strong believer with organizations like Compassion International. Their global motto is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And I've been blessed to be able to travel to the Philippines three times as a guest with Compassion to see firsthand what they do and the impact that it makes, not only in the children that are a part of that, but in their families and in the communities. For $38 a month, you can sponsor a child through Compassion. In fact, this past November, 20 new children were sponsored by our PUMC family. What a blessing. $38 a month is considerably less than many of us will pay for just a meal out for two. 
And Compassion uses that money to provide food, clothing, education, immunization, training, and spiritual growth in the lives of these young people. It's an amazing program. And in fact, if you have the sermon app on the sermon notes, at the bottom there's a link that you can go to Compassion if you want to find out more information or consider sponsoring a child. So we've been looking at Jesus' Beatitudes as the antidote to the seven deadly sins. And this week, the antidote passage is from Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is another one of those, at first glance, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with gluttony? Stay with me for a moment. Righteousness are those things which God holds as important. So to practice righteousness is to recognize where God is acting in the world, to come alongside it, and then to live a lifestyle so that we can support what God is doing in the world around us. Now, this is often not appreciated by others. In fact, others may denigrate, belittle, or oppose the way we live, hence the persecuted part of Jesus' statement. Three days before Jesus' death, a young woman named Mary pulled out her only treasure and broke it at Jesus' feet. A white jar filled with very expensive perfume may very well have been her mother's. It was the last thing she may have had to remember her mother by. William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, notes that the value of the perfume, John tells us it was uh, nearly a year's wage and salary. It suggests that it was a family heirloom that would have been passed on from one generation to another. And more than anything else, for Mary, this jar would have been her future. Its value represented her ability to attract a husband. Without the jar, she would have to live with her brother for the rest of her years. Without the jar, she would become an object of mockery at gatherings. Without the jar and its contents, no one would see her as beautiful because that's the way the culture was in those days. You needed that value, that dowry to be able to move on. Jeff Cook comments, we might say that in that jar were Mary's identity, her status, and her hopes of being united to a good man. So Mary approaches Jesus, looks him in the eye, breaks the jar, and pours out the precious perfume all over Jesus' feet. She then does something that women never did in public, and that was let down their hair. That was reserved uh, for you would do that only in the privacy of your home with your husband. She begins wiping Jesus' feet with the oils and drying them with her hair. Everyone watches. John says, no one approved. In fact, Judas, one of the disciples, called it a waste. And Jesus scolds his disciples, saying, let her alone. She's anticipating and honoring the day of my burial. For some reason, the disciples still hadn't figured out where this journey from Jesus was leading to, but Mary somehow had. She knew what was coming. And so instead of holding tight to her treasures... She gave it to Jesus. She broke the jar, and with it, she wrote out her future as one that would now be consisting of a life of poverty, scorn, and loneliness. She chose to die to herself for the sake of the soon-to-be-dead person in front of her. But in dying to herself, she became united with Christ. Jeff Cook writes, Contrary to the opinion of Judas and the other disciples, who saw only a rare perfume in a nice jar, what Mary broke at the feet of Jesus was her heart. Her whole life was poured out there before the sneering masses for the sake of her beloved. Yet the scent of her life given to Jesus filled the room with an exquisite fragrance. So this picture is the picture between Mary and her beloved, between Jesus and the church. This is the kingdom of heaven, of humanity united with God. Whereas the gluttonous, 
they unite themselves to what will ultimately kill them. The persecuted, having been united with Christ, give up even what they need for the sake of their beloved. So Jesus says, we're blessed when we sacrifice for others, for righteousness' sake. So the question remains for us today, who or what are we united to? Is it to our obsession of what we'll eat or drink or wear or drive or watch or listen to or home that we'll live in? Or is it to the one who gave all he had for us that we might have life and have it abundantly? The Christian church over the centuries has had an answer to the pull of gluttony. And it involves fasting and feasting. The Christian year consists of periods of normal consumption. We might just call this ordinary time punctuated by times of fasting to remind us that food needs to be kept in its place, but then also feeding or feasting to remind us that food is a very good thing, right? And so we celebrate the feasts of Christmas and Easter, but they're also preceded by the fasts of Advent and Lent. In between, it's life as normal. So fasting reminds us of our need for God, that we intentionally go without food for a specific period of time. It reminds us of our dependency upon God, our humanity, that men and women do not live by bread alone. It can also connect us more deeply to a larger world that often has food scarcity issues on a daily basis. But fasting by itself is nothing if it's not complemented with feasting. Feasting stops us from finding our identity in our ability to fast, in our ability to just sacrifice. That's what the sisters in uh, Babette's feast were struggling with. It's not about our self-control. It encourages us to enjoy food and to drink thankfully in the context of community and relationships. That eating should be a communal activity. In fact, eating together can be one of the most holy experiences that we have. Two of the three churches that I served in Hawaii had Pacific Islander congregations. One had a Tongan community and one had a Samoan community. Let me tell you, those brothers and sisters know how to feast together. Whether it's birthdays, weddings, funerals, holy days, other special occasions, Tongan and Samoan communities do a wonderful job of eating together in celebration. Tongans tend to set long tables, put all kinds of food out, including whole uh, roasted pigs, like with the snout and the ears and the hair and the apple in the mouth and all of that, and just a big knife in the middle, and you cut off your uh, portion of the pork that you're going to have, and it's amazing. The Samoan brothers and sisters at the church I served, they will often have people sit at tables and they'll bring out what we called soda boxes, uh, where you would hold uh, four six-packs of soda or juice. And in that soda box, they would give you more food than you could possibly eat in two meals as a way of celebrating, and then you can take home the leftovers. Now, if you're outside the community, you might say both of those are excessive, gluttonous, too extreme. I think it's an expression of love, of community of understanding that we are bound together and when we celebrate what God has given us together, it is a good thing. Now, back to our film and Babette's Feast, right? Babette has done a wonderful job of pouring out all of herself and creating this amazing meal for her community. But when the meal begins, the patrons secretly remind each other, don't say anything and don't enjoy it. Well, Babette has not only set an exquisite table, but the amazing setting is surpassed by the incredible food that she serves them. And they're just dying not to admit how good it is. Over the course of the meal, one of the guests, the general, he's the only one that isn't from this small village. He's 
he gets up and he's, he gives a speech where he's reminded of a meal he had once in Paris a long time ago at a restaurant called Café Anglais. And he, he recalls the head chef, a woman who had this unique ability, he says, to turn dinner into a love affair between bodily appetite and spiritual appetite. And by the end of the night, the guests have all dropped their sour attitudes. They've been expressing love and affection for one another. They've apologized for past hurts and sins. They've spoke so kindly about their community, all because of what that meal did for them. It was an amazing night. And when the guests had left for the evening, the sisters sought out Babette, who was back in the kitchen, to thank her for what they experienced. Babette's intentions had been misunderstood. Her motives had been suspect. But just through it all, she continued to spend all that she had for her friends. All 10,000 francs were poured out into the exquisite feast. Was it an expression of gluttony and wastefulness? I don't think so. I think it was an expression of love. It was an act of sacrifice. And as the sisters commented, it was a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, just like Mary did before Jesus. As we wrestle with the subject of gluttony, friends, let us not get caught up in the inordinate focus on what, how much, or how often we eat or drink. Instead, let us focus on how our appetites relate to the community that we've been blessed with. As we express our love for God through our relationships with one another, let us be willing to give our very best to those that God has placed in our midst, to a world in need of righteousness. And may we do so with joy and thankfulness, grateful for all that God has given. Thanks be to to God for the opportunity to do this very thing.